Well, week five of Cousin John, and today we're going to try and land the plane that took off five weeks ago. I want to welcome you as we approach our, our, our final week of discovering what the life of the Baptist means for you and for me. And I don't know if you have any takeaways or if this series has challenged you or transformed you in any way, but over the past five weeks as I have studied for this, the life of John the Baptist has certainly impacted me. And so my prayer is that as as we land this plane, uh, that the life of John would have forever marked you and forever marked myself. And it all comes down to this verse, our anchor verse for the series, John 3.30, and you should know it by now. He must become greater, and I must become less. That is the prayer of this whole series. It's what I've prayed for you every single week that we've met, is that through the life of John the Baptist, we would be challenged to shrink, to to walk out of this room just a little bit smaller and, and less in view so that Jesus could be made much of. And so that will continue to be my prayer for you and for me And today we look at a very challenging text, and that is the death of John the Baptist. But before we do that, let's ask for the Lord's blessing on our time in his word. Father, you are most holy, most righteous, most other than. And as we look to our strong Savior, Jesus, Lord, we thank you for your love demonstrated on that Roman cross. Lord, as we think back to the first Palm Sunday, which was more like a a death march, that Jesus walked into, rode upon a donkey into Jerusalem, knowing what awaited him, to the sound of praises. But Lord, we know from the rest of your word that those were empty praises, that they were praises for a conquering general and not a sacrificial king. So, Lord, I pray that our praises this morning that we've been singing and as we turn to your word and give you glory as we submit to it, Lord, that our praise would not be empty like it was on that first Palm Sunday. But, Lord, our lives would truly be lives of submission and obedience to your will and to your voice. Lord, we ask you, I ask you, in the name of Jesus this morning, that you would have your blessing, your anointing upon our time in your word, that you would open up your scriptures that we might see it and behold it and be changed by it. Lord, we ask for your presence right now, for your protection. Lord, that you would lead us and guide us in truth. And Lord, as as our Lord Jesus prayed on the night that he was betrayed, sanctify this church with truth. Your word is truth. Lord, we love you and we praise you. And it's in Jesus' beautiful name that we pray together. Amen. Would you read with me? Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. We are going to be in verses 14 through 29. If you don't have your Bible, there are some in the back next to the sound booth. And uh, if you'd like to just follow along on the screen, that's all right too. I want you to see it not just believe that it's there. I want you to see that this is there. Read with me. Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 14. 
Now King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. And some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was John who had sent and seized John, or it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and a holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Church, this is God's word. So the Baptist is dead. And he likely has been for some time. And in a dark, lonely Roman prison cell at that. See, the, the Baptist, the national revivalist that was John the Baptist, it, what in his life that was just this massive bang, this massive boom. He just comes onto the scene with power and authority in his preaching and what feels like a life that should have ended with a bang ends with what seems to be somewhat of a, of a fizzle, alone, despairing, beheaded in a prison cell. Now it's at this time or around it that Jesus begins to pick up prominence uh, in the Gospel of Mark, if you read back a little ways, uh, Jesus has just commissioned his disciples and sent them out uh, to perform healing and to cast out demons. And so Jesus and his disciples are going all around the land and they're performing these miraculous signs and wonders and it begins to stir the rumor mill and people begin to talk. See, it's not only capturing the hearts and the thoughts of the Jews, but now the Romans are beginning to see the power of Jesus and they begin to wonder, who is this guy? Now some people suggest, oh, it's Elijah. Oh, it's, it's a prophet, like a prophet of old, like Jeremiah. But Herod hears another suggestion. Some say, it is John the Baptist. He has been raised 
from the dead. And in this story, I can almost see the little hairs on the back of Herod's neck raised. As he says, it is John whom I beheaded. He has been raised. I mean, guilty conscience much? Do you think that maybe Herod is feeling some semblance of conviction? See, the life of John the Baptist we find in just these first few verses is haunting King Herod. Surely a hardened, sinful king who cared nothing of God, nothing of the scriptures, lived in a way that was immoral and gross. In fact, uh, the woman that he marries is not just his brother's wife, but a different brother's daughter. So clearly, he had a pretty seared moral compass in that he married his brother's wife, who was also his niece. This is not a good guy, and yet the life of John the Baptist continued to haunt him long after his death. I mean, surely Herod had put many people to death in his time as king, had many dissenters, had many people who rebelled against his way of life and said things about him that were uh, treasonous towards him. Surely he had put many men to death, and yet the life of John the Baptist continues to haunt him like a specter, like a ghost. See, long after John has died, the aftershocks of his life continued to rumble. This is what I would call legacy and what I'll call this morning in in our Christian context, gospel legacy. That's what we're talking about this morning. And it's what I want to call you into today. See, every once in a while, someone stumbles into our lives uh, that really leaves us permanently marked, that changes us, that challenged us by the way that they lived and the message that they preached to us. So maybe for you, that person is coming to mind. Maybe it was a, a parent or a pastor or just a good godly friend or mentor. For me, it was my grandmother. My grandmother was one of the godliest people I ever met. I grew up uh, going to her house every third weekend and staying from Friday to Saturday and sometimes even Sunday and I would go to church with her. And, And I remember going to bed and saying prayers with her at night. And when we woke up on Saturday morning after she had made breakfast, my grandmother and my grandfather and myself, we would sit down at the little table in the kitchen And my grandfather would read a a psalm every Saturday morning like clockwork. My grandmother, she was a quiet, gentle person. But she, you just knew she had a fire caught up in her bones for Jesus. Like she just loved Jesus so much. In fact, uh, when I was baptized back in 2012, July 4th, 2012 is when I was baptized. And I was baptized in a black church in the ghetto of Hartford, Connecticut, where there's gang warfare at a little church called the Citadel of Love. And of course, I wanted my godly grandmother who had shaped and challenged the way that I viewed following Jesus. Of course, I wanted her to come. So I invited her. And it was during the course of a missions trip that we were doing in Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, And so uh, the worship leader 
looked a little bit like what I look like now. Tattoos all up and down his arms, big gauges. And I'm thinking, I'm not sure if my very traditional conservative grandmother is going to like this. We ain't singing no hymns. And after the service, she said, that was one of the most spirit-filled services I've been to in a long time. See, that word appearance didn't matter to my grandmother. She just wanted Jesus. And she shaped the way that I viewed Christianity, the way I, I viewed following Jesus. See, long after my grandmother passed away in 2014, I still feel the tremors of her gospel legacy in my life. See, gospel legacy is not just being remembered. Because you can be remembered for all sorts of things. Doesn't mean it's good. You can't buy legacy. You can't leave legacy uh, behind in a bank account or an estate. Gospel legacy is your living and your lasting effect on people long after you go home to be with the Lord. It is the aftershocks of a life well lived for the glory of King Jesus that continue to rumble on and on and on. And so this morning, as we begin to talk about gospel legacy and, and land the plane of the life of the Baptist, I want to give you two things, a challenge and a charge as we begin. And my challenge to you is, is a question, will your life continue to rumble? W will your life, when you check out and you go home, Will you continue to live on in the lives of the people that you have impacted? Will your life have aftershocks? If you were to die today, right now, in your seat, and instead of a service, we have a funeral, would your life matter 100 years from now? Would the way that you lived now matter in 100 years in the lives of your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren? And I would suggest to you, if you're not living for that, you're selling yourself short of what you could be. And my charge today, which is also our big idea, is this. To sow gospel legacy that outlasts you. Today we're going to explore why John's life continued to have aftershocks and hope that maybe we gain a few lessons Maybe we get a little fire under our feet that will cause us to begin to live differently than we were living when we walked into this building so that we can sow this gospel legacy that will last. So today we're going to explore John's life, why it continued to rumble and how it should shape us as you and I pursue gospel legacy. Like what was the content of his life that made his legacy so potent in the life of immoral, evil King Herod? Or, or more than that, what about us? I mean, over the past five weeks, if we've, as we've traveled through the life of John the Baptist, uh, why are we impacted? Have you been impacted by his life? Have you been convicted or challenged by the life of John the Baptist? If you have, newsflash, we're 2,000 years removed from his life. And yet it continues to rumble in us. 
And from this text, I want to suggest that we can see a few reasons why. And the first reason, you can see it in verses 17 and 18, is that John rubbed people the wrong way for the right reasons. If you want to sow gospel legacy, you have to be willing to rub people the wrong way for the right reasons. I mean, this was just so typical John. This whole text is just typical John the Baptist. If you remember back to week two, and, we, and John is baptizing people and calling them to repentance, and these Pharisees who only want to escape the wrath of God but don't want to submit to his will, what does he say to them? You brood of vipers, you children of snakes, you sons of serpents, who told you to come? Come on, John, preach some fire. Are you kidding me? I mean, he is going toe-to-toe with the religious elite of his day, the people that everybody else were afraid of. John was willing to, let's use that buzz phrase, speak truth to power. John actually did that with the threat of real consequences. That was the Pharisees in week two. That's just religious leaders in Judea. Now we're talking about him going toe-to-toe with a king who has a prison and an executioner. And John was willing to go toe-to-toe with him and say, what you're doing is sin. It is immoral. It is an evil blot on the face of God who created you. I mean, John knew godly from godless, and he was outspoken about it. He wasn't afraid to ruffle some feathers or rub people the wrong way for the right reason. And this is atypical of most people today, yeah? We don't feel prison, but we're afraid of being canceled. We're not afraid of being executed, but we sure don't want to be ostracized. I mean, most people flee from conflict today, even if they know what they're seeing is wrong. Man, what we run from, John embraced. I mean, you know, do you guys remember there, there was a popular phrase that was going around Christianity, maybe like, I feel like the first time I heard it was like 10 years ago. It's a quote attributed to Martin Luther. There's no support that says that Martin Luther actually said this. But the quote goes like this, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. What a a bunch of baloney. Are you kidding me? That, That is the dumbest thing that has come out of Christianity in a long time. Because the apostle Paul would say, how can they believe if they have not heard? Not if they haven't seen with the gospel in your life. No. Gospel growth requires you and I to preach, to share the good news with people because how can they believe if they have not heard with their ears? Man, preach the word if necessary. Use your voice is the bumper sticker of a church that has lost its spine. Man, John had a spine though. He was willing to speak real truth to real power and face real consequences. What we run from, John embraced fully. But the second thing that we see from his life is that uh, John swam upstream constantly. 
in verses 19 and 20, it says that Herodias, his new wife, had a grudge against him, right? So John the Baptist, he's saying, what you're doing is sin. It is evil. It is immoral. You break the law of God to a bunch of heathens, by the way. He's not, he's not talking to other Jews. He's talking to a bunch of heathens, immoral Roman heathens. And he still spoke this message to them, which for some reason the church today feels like it's off limits for us to tell the world that they're sinning against the law of God. It's not off limits, church. That's the message. That's the gospel. And so John preached a difficult message, but he also lived in a very difficult way. Herodias held a grudge against him, but guess what? Herod protected him, even though Herod was the one that threw him into prison. Why? Because he feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and a holy man, which righteous and holy, those are words that both describe the manner of your life. How do you actually live? Holy just means different other than set apart, and in our context, it means set apart unto God. Righteous means that the way that we're living, the things that we do, honor God because they are his way and not our own. So this is a very countercultural way of living. And Christians, we have this really bad habit of grading ourselves on a curve instead of grading ourselves at the cross. We think, oh, well, you know, I think my manner of life is good enough because this is the way that I see my pastor live or my life group leader. He, he lives this way and he does this thing, so I guess it's okay. But the standard is not the people around you. The standard is Jesus. The standard is God himself. The standard is the holiness found in his word. John lived upstream. He was holy and righteous lived against the grain and he bucked cultural expectations of normality and acceptance and even after being imprisoned by Herod Herod continued to protect John from his murderous wife why because he feared John now you can take this two ways and I'll let you interpret it this morning it can mean actual fear or it can mean reverence respect which tells me people don't have to like you to respect the way that you live. He feared John because he was holy. He was set apart unto God. And he was righteous. He lived in opposition to sin. John lived in his normal, practical life in accordance with his faith in God. He walked by faith, in other words. What he did and what he said was dictated by his belief in a holy God. He knew God and he knew his word and he chose daily to crucify himself and to live it. As James would say, he wasn't just a hearer of the word and he wasn't just a preacher of the word either. He was a doer of the word. Now, one thing I find interesting about this passage is that even though Herod was the one that imprisoned John for his message of sin and repentance, of calling out Herod and saying what you're doing is immoral and evil, you break the law of God, he still couldn't get enough of it. Herod didn't like the message, but he still couldn't, his, his ears were tickled. Or in other words, he, he had a stone in his shoe that was John the Baptist that was annoying and he just couldn't get it out of his shoe and he kept going back. 
right? When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed. He was confused by John's message, and yet he heard him gladly. Interesting. See, people don't have to like you to listen to your message. Herod hated John's message, but loved to listen to him. And we see here the amazing power of truth over conscience. Truth over the conscience of any person, not just somebody who has been saved and sealed by the Holy Spirit. If you have the right message, the right message, the gospel truth message, people don't have to like it to listen to it and even want more of it. And the the question I would ask is, why is that true? It is because the law of the Lord is written on every human heart. And so when we preach gospel truth and we live in a way that honors God, even in the most hardened person's heart, something resounds as true and beautiful and desirable. Even if they don't understand it, even if they reject that, There is something in every human heart because the law of the Lord has been written there. And so when we speak the truth of God's word, it resounds. And so the question remains, church, how do we go about sowing gospel legacy if we are to look at the life of John the Baptist? Well, I want to lead you through a few lessons from his life as we land this plane today. And the first lesson is this, is that we need to speak the truth no matter your audience. Hey, he was a truthful critic of a king who had power, who had a prison, who had an executioner, and we aren't willing to be truthful to our children or to our friends or our coworkers who can't even fire us. And our friends, all they can do is stop answering the phone. I mean, John was willing to speak real truth to real power with real consequences. And we're not willing to share the truth with our neighbor. Who at the very most can move. See, the reality is that as we look at the life of John the Baptist, he wouldn't have died if he had just kept the truth to himself. If John had just learned his lesson by his imprisonment and just shut up, he he would very well have lived out his days a happy man. But Herod also wouldn't have been marked by his life. See, there's lots of people that I don't remember. I mean, think think about your life. No matter how old you are, you have likely met thousands upon thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people in your life. If you consider uh, grade school and high school and your different jobs and the missions trips you've been on and the different places that you've lived and the churches you've interacted in, I mean, you've probably met thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people, and I have met the same amount of people, and there are very few people who have marked my life. And there's lots of people who I don't even remember their name. That didn't have a lasting impact. Whose life doesn't rumble still in my life. And those are the people that gave me no resistance. No truth. (laughs) 
people that refuse to share hard truths are the most forgettable people. If you offer no resistance, no challenge to the life of the people around you, then, then you are likely forgettable. Your life will not rumble when you are gone. That's why I love, there was uh, somebody who came up to me after service a couple weeks ago and said, hey, I really think you should apologize for one of the things that you said. And after praying about it, it, it was in second service, so y'all didn't experience that. I, I said something that was wrong. It was unbiblical. It was as I was rushing through my message and, and this, these words just kind of slipped out of my mouth and somebody confronted me after. And guess what? That marked me. It was a hard truth to hear something that I wrestled with, something that was really difficult for me. But his willingness to speak the truth to me marked me. It rumbled in me. So the people that are most forgettable are the people who are unwilling to tell the truth. Now, it's a difficult way to live. And we don't face prison or death at least not now, but we do face being ostracized, disliked, gossiped about. You lose your job. Man, I had one boss, one of the people that has marked my life forever was a man named Josh Camper, and he was my boss at a group home that I worked at uh, with uh, children who had behavioral issues, in and out of juvenile hall, things like that. His name is Josh Camper, and, and he came from a different group home before he was my boss, and he was just a worker there. And he shared the gospel with the kids. Now, this is a state-run group home. That's not allowed. And when the people told him you need to shut up, he chose that he would rather get fired than to be quiet about the truth. Because he realized that if he was going to have a lasting impact in the lives of these kids, it wouldn't just be through playing games with them and telling them how awesome they were and taking them out on outings. It was by telling them the truth, even if it was difficult and even if it was costly. See, if your highest purpose is to preserve your job and preserve your friendships, then by all means, be quiet. And your life will fizzle out rather than boom. But if you want your life to carry weight and to leave a mark, then, then speak the truth no matter who it is that you are talking to. We need to live unafraid of speaking truth. If, if you live your life unafraid of speaking the truth, then you can have influence over kings. That's what we learn from the story. I mean, John the Baptist is just this desert wild man. Who is he? He's not a guy in a, in a royal robe. He's not a guy with power and authority. He was just a guy with a voice. And he had influence over a king. That's our first lesson. Our second lesson this morning is to know and live your faith out loud. See, nothing about John's life was the easy path. Not his message, not his manner of life. He was killed for his message, but he was feared for his manner of life. That he was holy and he was righteous. See, it is easy to live according to the lazy river of the culture, to just get in your little floaty and have the streams of culture carry you down the river. That is easy. What is difficult is living a life of holy resistance. 
is hard to be holy as God is holy, to live in purity when our culture is a septic tank. And practically, what does this look like? It, it looks like you and I being serious about our holiness, about being holy as God is holy, taking sin seriously, recognizing that a, a, in five days as we gather on Good Friday that it was your sin that put the nails in the hands of Jesus and to forsake those sins to repent, to turn to Christ. It is hard to crucify yourself on a daily basis, but it's, it's what we're called to. See, are, are you striving to be more like Jesus? Are you striving to, striving to be holy as God is holy, different, other than, guess what? If you do that, you're going to stick out like a sore thumb. You're going to be set apart. You're going to be different. You're not going to look like everybody else, which is something that we all want. We all want to be kind of conformed. We don't want to stick out. We don't want to cause too much turbulence. Man, if you want to leave a mark on the lives of the, of the people around you that will continue to rumble these aftershocks of your life, then you need to live a little bit different. You, you have to be willing to buck the culture and, and say, this is not the way God has called me to live. And it might mean making some radical decisions to change the way that you live now. But listen, there will be no power behind your message if your life doesn't back it up. Man, we can preach good news all we want, but if our lives don't back it up, it's going to be a powerless message. And the last lesson that we learn from the life of John is that we need to be willing to go to the grave for it. So I would suggest to you this morning that the only things really worth living for are the things worth dying for. Even in his prison, even in John's despair and not understanding why Jesus was letting him rot in a Roman prison, the Baptist did not denounce his charges upon Herod. And he remained in his prison cell until his head was taken from him in it. He was murdered for his message. Now, in our country right now, and I've said this before, uh, we do not fear death and we don't fear imprisonment. We still have freedom of speech and freedom from or, uh, a state-run religion. We can practice what we want to practice. But what we really fear is being ostracized, canceled, gossiped about, looked down upon, slandered for our faith. And what I sadly see, even though the consequences are so much less severe, is a church culture that fears being canceled more than it fears God. Churches, denominations, I see backpedaling the truth of Scripture. so that they don't lose attendance. So that, that they're not marginalized in a news segment as a hateful, bigoted church. I, I see the American church backpedaling away from the truth of God's word to bow to the demands of culture. I see lots of churches, entire denominations, 
letting their convictions come and go with the culture. And if your convictions come and go with the culture in order that you might not get canceled, maybe not even in a big way, just canceled by your friends, or canceled by your own family members, can I remind you of what Jesus said? If you follow me, brother will hate brother. Father will hate son. That is the cost. If your convictions come and go with the culture in order not to be canceled, man, you got another thing coming. Because God's judgment is far more severe than man's. We need to stop fearing the culture. We need to start fearing God. And let me remind you of another thing that Jesus said. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my father. That is a harsh, severe judgment. Because this is not just denial with your words, it's denial with your life. If, if your practice doesn't match your preaching, if your lifestyle doesn't match the message, we must not deny God before man. And John the Baptist was willing to go to the grave for it. Are you? Are you willing to live with the consequences for the sake of your convictions? Church, let me encourage you this morning to live with convictions worth dying for, worth suffering consequences for, worth being canceled for, or worth losing friends for, losing clout for, being defamed for, because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing worth living for, and it is the only thing worth dying for. See, church, as we close today, sowing legacy is a counter-cultural message. Because what are we taught today in the schools, on TV, by Netflix, by the news? We are told to make today about us. Your life is solely about you. Your life is about your comfort. It's about your dreams. It's about your pleasure and your immediate gratification, but sowing gospel legacy makes your life about another. It is about making your life about Jesus. And it exchanges the pleasures of this world for the pleasures of the next. See, this is a hard calling, what I would call you into today. But I want to encourage you today, in a, in a culture that tells you nothing is worth it unless you get immediately gratified by it, to not be discouraged. If you never get to taste the fruit of the hard work of sowing gospel legacy, because legacy is something that you will likely never see blossom. That you may never get to see the day of salvation for your wayward child or your unbelieving spouse. But if you sow gospel legacy, you may be greeting them as they walk into the pearly gates. You and I, we must live to sow gospel legacy in our children and our grandchildren with the prayer that the tremors of our legacy will reach great-grandchildren that you may never meet. I mean, your great-great-great-great-grandchildren do not have to know your name to experience the effect that you had 
on their great-great-great-grandfather or grandmother. The, the children of your friends don't have to know your name to experience the effect and the tremor of your legacy. If we would just choose to be different, to be holy, to rub people the wrong way for the right reasons. Sowing legacy, church, look at me, it looks like making hard decisions now and choosing to live an uphill battle now for results you may never live to see in this life. But instead of results in this life, you will receive crowns in glory. There's a great quote by one of my favorite artists, John Mark McMillan. He says this. So shall I plant sequoias and revel in the soil of a crop I know I'll never live to reap? Then sow my body to my maker and my heart unto my savior and spread me on the road, the rocks and the weeds. Whatever you sow in this life, it, it is going to fall upon rocks and weeds. It'll affect people, but it, it will never transform them. But on some people's lives, there is good soil that your gospel legacy will sow a seed. And you may never see it grow. But trust it into God's hand. Friends, that our lives would be spread on the road and the rocks and the weeds for a tree that we may never see grow. Let me encourage you and exhort you today in, in light of John the Baptist and his life to sow gospel legacy that outlasts you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you for the life of the Baptist. Lord, I pray that we would be impacted by him. His convictions, what he stood for, his message and his life. Lord, that we wouldn't sell ourselves short on a life that has no aftershock, no tremors, that has no reach beyond our final breaths. Lord, let us live for more than that. Lord, that our lives would reach people that we never meet. Help us to make the difficult decisions now so that we can see gospel legacy plant a seed of salvation in others. Lord, we pray that our lives would be for your glory that in our lives as we leave today, that the name of Jesus might be made much of in our lives. Lord, that you would be made much of in our lives, in our message. Help us to have hard conversations. Help us to live against the grain of our culture. Lord, that we wouldn't just blend in, but that we would stick out. Lord, that we would make a difference in this world for the glory of your kingdom and for the glory of your name, King Jesus. These things we pray in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.
What an intense message that is. What a powerful message that is. So now, as we uh, prepare to finish this uh, this series out, as we prepare to do the communion and the offering, or not the communion, but just the offering, uh, take out these cards, and on the back of them, we've got your next steps to take this sermon and make it more than just a message that we hear this morning, just more than just a message on a Sunday, but actually a change to our own lives, to live that gospel out, to live differently, and to have that lasting impact. And that first one is to embrace holy confrontation, to be willing to call sin out for what it is, to be willing to call darkness out for what it is, because it is sin, and it is darkness, and it needs to be changed. And so we'd ask that you would uh, uh, commit to doing that this week, to look not only at your own lives, but the lives of those around you, and be willing to take a step forward, to live differently. And the second one is to be holy as God is holy. And that doesn't necessarily mean you have to, like, get a floating halo over your head and be all shining and glowing and when you walk in a room an angelic chorus goes oh, but it means to live differently to set yourself apart to be different and the third one on there is to live righteously to hate sin not just be willing to confront it not just be willing to call it out but to hate sin itself and to love the things of God to love that which God has declared to be righteous and holy and good. And the fourth next step is to be unwavering in your convictions. If you commit to any of these things, be committed to all of them. Do not surrender these things. John the Baptist never surrendered, and it cost his life. Many Christians around the world have never surrendered, and it cost their life or their livelihood, or their homes. Who are we to call ourselves Christians if we are not willing to do the same? So those are the next steps that we have for you this week, to take this sermon and make it more than just a message, but to make it a true change in our own lives, to live it out from this point forward. Take a moment to fill those out. To commit to being more just an attender on a Sunday morning. Let us pray for these commitments as we end this service. Heavenly Father, we know that you are a holy God, that you are a righteous God, and that you want the same from us, holiness and righteousness. As we make these commitments, as we make these convictions, we ask that you would give us the strength to see them through. Give us the courage to continue to step forth in faith, regardless of the consequences. No matter if it costs us family or friends or our jobs or our homes, that we never stop living for you, that we never stop confronting sin, that we never stop making a mark on people's lives. We ask that you give us the strength to do this, the courage to do this. We ask that you give us the power of the Holy Spirit so that when we do these things and live this life of conviction, we don't
don't do it just because just because we've been asked to but because of who you are and who you say that we are so that people will see you and be drawn to you we pray this in Jesus name